This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. The Pope and Young Club wants to welcome you as we rally together to ensure our bow hunting opportunities for today and tomorrow. You've come to the podcast that believes in preserving, protecting, and promoting the passion for bow hunting. Join us as we strive to be the voice of today's bow hunter. This is the Pope and Young Podcast. Hi folks, this is Jason Roundsville with Pope and Young. I'm here with Dylan Ray, and we're going to have a great conversation today we actually have Justin Gordon on who just had his mule deer scored at the special panel convened in Utah. And uh, we want to talk to talk to him about that. Um, first of all, Justin, welcome. Welcome on. Thanks, guys. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm excited to be here. Well, we're excited to have you. It's it's what a fantastic I just I I can't imagine you hear about a 300 inch mule deer and I have to look at a picture just so I have some idea of what that even means. And I, first question I have to ask you, what does it feel like to be a world record holder for a brand new non-typical mule deer? I think that's the exciting part for me. I I still try to wrap my head around it. Every time I look at the deer, uh, you know, on my, it's there with a, a handful of other mule deer. And I think the biggest takeaway for me or the most exciting part is that this, along with a lot of other animals in the past, have kind of combined to say, all right, yeah, we need a category for velvet um, because there are legal seasons and there's a lot of archery opportunity uh, in the velvet. And so being not only the first, I, I don't know how many others have been measured for the world record non-typical mule deer velvet category, but uh, kind of being the first entry in that category, I think is, uh, is pretty significant. It's exciting. 
That's great. Well, so long time deer hunter then? Yeah. I mean, I grew up where I live now. I grew up in West in Utah. Uh, and I think, you know, for, for me as a kid, everyone talked about 30 inch bucks and, uh, that's the way we referred to mule deer. I don't, I didn't care how, you know, spindly they were, <laughs> uh, just as long as they were wide. But, uh, that, you know, those, those are my early recollections going back to, I just remember my dad was more of an upland hunter and I, I just, I remember always begging him to take me deer hunting. And, uh, so that goes all the way back to before I could ever pack a rifle. You bet. So, so let me go, let me ask you a, a question about what you just said. What, what do you think the fascination going from upland hunting, uh, being a young man, what was the fascination for the big game and, and wanting to chase that big game? Man, maybe it was because just... I was the, the only reason I ask is because I was the same way. I was the exact same way. You know, I maybe it was the the rarity. I big mule deer and mule deer in general. Just when I was growing up, you know, we were long past the heyday of mule deer of the '60s or '50s or whenever those. You know, you, you see those old pictures, and I don't know. I, I maybe it was just the fact that you didn't see a lot of big mule deer bucks it seemed very elusive i don't know what there was about it maybe it was just the purely the fact that my dad didn't do it and so that was the thing that was exciting to me is is i didn't have a lot of exposure to it i can't explain it yeah i see me and jason kind of differ here we were talking about this uh one time and you know he said that's his fascination with bird hunting is that you know he gets to shoot so many shells in a day and then he can go back the next day and shoot however many shells you know again and uh you know with big game hunting you might only get to shoot that one animal a year but for me that is the fascination that, that they're so rare and, and and you know i i don't know i'd just rather sure i only get to shoot one deer a year but but standing over you know a 160 inch whitetail or a i mean in your case a stinking new world record congratulations for me personally by the way uh but standing over that that monster of an animal i, I don't know it just it just speaks to me differently than shooting a a, a bag full of birds yeah don't get me wrong i love <laughs> i love upland i love waterfowl i just have time for one thing in my life right now and that that's kind of been an evolution in and of itself um and, and so in picking that one thing, it's amazing how much time pursuing large mule deer can take out of your year when you're looking at uh, studying different areas that you want to put in for a tag. You're looking at how you might approach those areas, whether it's on foot or with machine. And it's interesting, just this year, I've started to realize some of the similarities or the crossover with whitetail hunting. And I can see where I could really get, I, I've never done it, but I can see where I could really get into hunting whitetail because you can spend an entire year strategizing around a little plot of land on where you're going to be for different situations. And, uh, and it's, it's, very, a, it's a chess, it's a chess match. Yeah. So yeah, it's only one tag or one animal, uh, but it is, it's a lot more consuming than that. It, it's a full-time hobby as much time as I have to dedicate to a hobby. That's for sure. You bet. And, and so talk a little bit more about that, Justin, what, you know, go, go through the full calendar with us of, of what you're doing and how far in advance I, you know, some people are like, Oh, I grabbed my tag at, you know, Walmart and I went hunting, you know, this is obviously way more than that for most of us, but give us an insight into that. 
Yeah, it, here we are. My, you know, my hunting season really, for all intents and purposes, ended. I just haven't had time to hunt. Utah has an extended archery season in certain areas, and every year, with the best of intentions, I plan on that, but I don't end up having time to do it. Uh, so I'm literally right now. I'm I'm planning. I've I've been looking at maps and different units and looking at the draw odds in different units um, across the West. I'm speaking specifically of mule deer because that's something that I enjoy a lot. Uh, it and and going back to the childhood discussion we had a moment ago, I I wonder if my uh, passion to pursue mule deer was kind of started with the fact that even when I did get opportunities to hunt as a young man, the likelihood of finding a buck, much less one that I wanted to, that I thought was worth chasing, would just, it didn't happen. I mean, period. I mean, I've eaten more tags in my lifetime than any one person or two people should. But, you know, so getting back to my, my, my time now, I, I can dedicate myself to really one good what I would call 10 to 14 day hunt. I specifically like to pursue uh, mule deer in the backcountry, um, in roadless areas, whether that's wilderness or just uh, national forest. It's I specifically seek out roadless areas, not because I think there are big deer there, but because uh, I, I, I like the solitude and the opportunity of pursuing a deer kind of one-on-one. And the further away I get from people doesn't necessarily mean I find animals, but I certainly find the solitude. And then when the animal shows up, it becomes a, a one-on-one versus having 15 other people around me. Um, so it starts now. It, it's looking at all those things. I'm looking at maps. I'm looking at, at Google Earth. I'm looking at draw odds. And I'm seeing where, where do I want to be in a unit if I can pull that tag. Um, and then... I think like a lot of people, I have an anticipation and, and I'm shooting my bow throughout the year and I, I love tweaking equipment. I love just the nuance of archery that it doesn't matter. I have a friend, a dear friend of mine that really has helped me in my pursuit of animals become better at the craft of archery hunting. And he's a, he's a stick bow hunter, hunts with a recurve. And it doesn't matter if you're hunting with a recurve or a compound or a long bow you can get as far into the minutia of, of gear as you'd like to. And I enjoy that aspect of it. So that's where it becomes a year round pursuit. Um, uh, you know, where are you going to hunt? And then I get into how are you going to, I think the way one, a whitetail hunter would approach a specific, uh, plot. I look at a, not a mountain range, but a drainage within a mountain range in much the same way. How am I possibly going to first find an animal there and then put myself in a position to stalk an animal when you have such low densities at those in those areas? Uh, so anyway, I, I got, again, that went pretty random, but that's, that's where it turns into a year round pursuit. Absolutely. Now, now, now before I, but I got a question for you, but before I ask that, I, I, I 100% agree with you about archery. Um, being that fine art and that's what draws me to it. Um, you know, anybody can go out and, and, and shoot a hundred rounds with a 22 and, and a couple hours, anybody can go out and shoot a, a, a rifle at a, a soup can on a stump. 
But for me, taking your bow and breaking it down into tuning your arrows, tuning your broadheads, you know, what rest is going to work best for this situation, what sights do I need to run? That's the fascination for me with bow hunting is, it, is it's a fine art and it's a, it's a constant learning process. It's a constant changing process. I mean, they're always coming out with, with new things on let off and new things on tuning a bow, French tuning a bow, walk back tuning. I mean, there's always new things coming out with bows that I can begin to refine the way I bow hunt. And so I absolutely agree with you about that being kind of the fascination and what draws you to, to archery and it being that, that, that year long pursuit of the deer. That, you're right. That deer shooting that deer boils down to a couple seconds, but what led into shooting that deer was a year long process, year long work, year long study, year long practice of shooting a bow. I mean, it, it was a year long sport for that, you know, quote unquote, national championship moment you know uh i I mean i always tell people you know uh, an nfl team didn't go out and just win a a super bowl they had to practice they had to put time in they had to scout they had to recruit and that's what bow hunting is for me it might boil down to just you know a matter of moments but in all reality i've been chasing this deer for two years i've been studying them i've been planting food plots i've been hanging tree stands i've been working on my bow so that i absolutely agree with you about that being part of the fascination of bow hunting yeah it's the you know, it's almost mystical. It's the passion that you have to have to become a, a truly great bow hunter. Yeah. There, and, and I've heard it used, I've heard it uh, referred to as a discipline, uh, the shooting, the act of shooting the bow. Um, but I think that carries over, you know, into a lot of things. And, and that is, you know, the discipline of archery, having, trying to repeat um, that shot process, regardless of what's going on around you, um, and with all of the variables that come into play, yeah, there's something about that that really grabbed me. And, and actually, relatively recently in my life, you know, just within the last 15 years, I had thought about it because I enjoyed reloading and long range shooting um, before. I had custom turrets on a rifle and all those other things, right? I mean, I was, uh, I enjoyed that aspect of, of shooting and, and rifle hunting 15 to, you know, 30 years ago. <clears throat> and now uh, it was about 15 years ago that I had, I had threatened to move to archery hunting for years and years and years because I would always find animals while I was out scouting during the summer and I would see archery hunters while I was out scouting for a hunt that was two or three months away. And I was like, man, why am I not hunting right now? And then when I finally dove into it, I had no idea the type of, um, I don't know, archery really grabs you and it's, it's fun. It's engaging. I can do it at home in my backyard with my kids I can go to 3D shoots throughout the year. Um, for me, there, there's just so many aspects of it that that uh, are ju- are more rewarding than reloading and shooting. Not that that's not fun. Yeah, no, it is. There's so. What was it that finally got you to make that switch to say, you know, this is the year that I'm going to jump in. I'm going to do archery. Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to. I think it had just boiled over so many years of, of, um, having some success rifle hunting and, and hunting with a muzzle loader and always thinking, I, 
I want to be close. I like the idea that the archery come, brings to the table. When I was 14, 15, 16 years old, I had friends that had bows and their brothers had bows and we would shoot their bows. And I even went archery hunting when I was like 17 years old. Right. Um, but I never had a bow of my own, never did pursue it. And I don't know, it just all boiled over. And then there was that day where I sat down with my wife, told her I was going to make the switch. So all the reloading, everything in the reloading room was going to turn into Archie equipment. And, um, fortunately she didn't realize the, um, the, the, the dollar amount that I was talking about at that moment <laughs> in time. And, uh, and, and now I'm down that rabbit hole. Yeah. What, what is that saying? Please don't let my wife sell my sporting goods for what I told her I paid for them. Something like that. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. It's just, yeah, no, of course I don't have to buy a new, another gun. It's, it's just a bow. It's more expensive than my last gun, but it's just a bow. Hey, and listen, it, I, I, my, we got my dad, we got my dad is, uh, my dad's gotten too old and got bad shoulders. And so last year for Christmas, uh, I bought him a new, uh, a new bear bow and I gave it to him for Christmas and he was so excited because he could finally bow hunt again. He had not been able to bow hunt for a couple of years. And so I told, told my mom, uh, you know, this is just the day after Christmas. He said, baby, I need to run over to Academy and uh you know get target and stuff and so we go to academy and he ends up getting broadheads and a little target and a case and everything spends spends a couple hundred dollars and we get to the register and he says we'll put uh put 50 on this debit card uh here's here's 30 in cash and i got a gift card over here so we go home and he tells my mom well babe i had to spend a, a little more than i wanted to i had to spend 50 bucks <laughs> and uh she said well hey you needed that stuff that's okay sweetheart you needed it Oh, I'm glad everyone lives in, in a similar world. Yeah. I'm <clears throat> my, my wife, for whatever reason, does not perceive any value in carbon arrows. So she doesn't think they cost anything. And, um, thank goodness. Uh, <laughs> right. There's no, she's looking at a, She's looking at an arrow going that can't cost that much. And she's never asked. So, uh, I'll just keep it that way. Yeah, that's a good way to be. Cause if you think about it the other way, you know, if you shoot at a grouse or something, you're like, uh-oh, that one's gone. There's 30 bucks. <laughs> so it's 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 way better to think of it the way that she thinks of it. Yeah, that's right. So so you know what? Tell me one one of the things you you've been doing this the archery for about 15 years, you said. Tell us about your first archery buck. I want to hear about that one. <sighs> My first archery buck <clears throat> came after seven years of seven years of failure i think roughly plus or minus five to seven years uh, now is that is that five to seven years of failure or is that five to seven years of learning and experience that's there you go that and that's exactly what it and that's where you get all of your experiences in failure right you know you hear it all the time people learn a lot more in failure than they do in success um, in every aspect of life. And certainly that's, that's what it was. It was just pure learning and experience gathering. Prior to that, I'd killed three or four elk with my bow. My first kill with a, with a compound bow when I got into this was the year that I got into it. And it was a five point bull elk. And, um, I, I think that it, it, it's, it's, I've, I'm going to talk a little bit about that story because it highlighted for me things that I'd always believed. And I've shared this with other people. And I kind of walk around with this mentality when I'm in the mountains. So uh, out here is, is um, 
I kind of imagine my query as being um, a sniper, fully armed, and I have to find them before they find me. And that changes the way you approach skylines and the terrain of the West. And when I killed that first elk with my bow, I noticed some patterns where these elk would show up at a reasonable, you know, with shooting light left, as long as there was no one around. But anytime any hunter was anywhere in that area, the elk would come out after dark. And I realized it was because everyone approached through this on the same trail system. And I realized in my research that I, you know, I crept over that trail and peered down into what I thought was the elk's bedding area and staging area. And finally, one day I found them all bedded and um, realized that anytime someone was on that trail, they skyline themselves to those elk three, four, 500 yards away. And the elk wouldn't come out until after dark. That was the pattern that I noticed. And th those types of lessons with that first kill have carried over um, to everything that I do. And every year you learn a little something like that. Um, but uh, yeah, the first, the first mule deer buck was quite a treat. Not only because it came, I think, on like the 11th or 14th day of a backcountry hunt, but um, because of all of the failure or all of the lessons that had learned, been learned leading up to that. And uh, finally... You know, again, I had a friend and a mentor with me that, um, th and this was the first year that he and I hunted together. And, and it's no doubt that there, that's the reason it's the first year that I actually harvested this mule deer, uh, was because I had someone there with me that had 20 plus years of experience to walk through the stock that I saw before me and help me execute successfully. And in having a mentor by my side for my first mule deer kill, A, made it possible that I actually got the kill, but B, accelerated my learning by probably 15 years and made everything that's come since then possible. You bet. Now, man, I, I, I'm anxious to hear the story of, of this world record. Um, so you guys found it. How long before uh, you harvesting the deer did you lay eyes on this buck? Uh, I'm pretty sure it was five days. I, I have to pull, I have to go back through my memory banks and say, what day was it? It was a Wednesday, and then we killed it, I think, on a Monday. I can't even, some of those little things are, um, I have to go back through my journal. And that's why I keep a journal, because I have a horrible memory. But yeah, uh, this same mentor that was there, you know, 10 years ago, and helped me harvest my first mule deer buck um, was the person who actually found this world record. Now, now, what, what starts what starts going through your mind when you realize I, I have a chance to kill an absolute monster here? See, see, I want to go back even one step further. I mean, is this a rock, paper, scissors? There's two of you guys in camp. Who, <laughs> who gets to make a run at that monster? That's what I want to hear. So it, that's a cool, and I've shared this with others, but that's, I think, the one of the most impressive or, or best parts of this, of what happened. Um, it's a it's a wilderness hunt. It's, it's, you know, base camp where we were set up at that time was uh, a little over 10 miles from the trailhead. And people think 10 miles, I run half marathons, I run marathons, not a big deal. Well, put, you know, 
X amount of food and water uh, and, and supplies on your back that you've got to sustain yourself back in there for anywhere from nine to 14 days is usually how I like to set up and covering that 10 miles takes every daylight hour that exists at the end of August. Yeah. Right. So we're back in there. He and I had been hunting together by this time for seven, eight, ten, nine years, whatever it is. I don't know. <clears throat> um, and he had seen me. I, I just love wandering around in the backcountry. He had seen me walk away from some really good deer because I have wanderlust and want to see, is there something else over there in that drainage? And um, so he actually came back to camp after spotting this animal. You know, what is it, five? So you got Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, the fifth day of the hunt. He walks in and uh, to camp and says, and he's stuttering and he can't, st he literally for the first couple of minutes, couldn't get through an entire sentence trying to show me pictures of this buck uh, that he had taken with his DSLR, digiscoping it. And, um, and then he said, you know, you need to kill this buck. He didn't say, hey, we're going to go work this thing together and whoever gets it, gets it. He said, you need to go kill this buck. Wow. Yeah. And I think part of that was just the, the, what we, he and I had built together, um, the, the time we'd spent together, he's, he's a, like I said, a stick bow hunter and an opportunist and loves the thrill of getting, counting his, his shots in as far as the measurement in feet rather than yards. And he knows that I'll, that most years I, I prefer not to, to fill my tag unless I'm convinced that it's the, the biggest, oldest buck that exists on the mountain that year. And that's just a different approach that we have. And so when this deer showed itself, it was just, you know, he, he's the one that made the decision, man, you, you're going to kill this deer. It's yours to chase. Well, I'll, I'll bet he's never going to run out of whiskey, is he? <laughs> Whatever. I mean, yeah, you, that's right. You, you, a friend like that, you keep them stocked up in whatever they need. <laughs> that's right. So, wow. What that's, that's a great story. So, so from there he comes in, this buck is so big. He can't even form a sentence. He tells you, you have to go get this buck. And then what, then from there it was five days. So tell us about that. Yeah. I mean, that's just the typical backcountry mule deer hunt where, um, it was pretty, I mean, the fact that this deer showed itself or we didn't locate it until the fifth day was kind of interesting to me because we thought we knew the area and what animals were in that area. And obviously we didn't this, this deer. And it, I believe based on the way it acted the next for the next several days that I was hunting it was the, was uh, it was pretty much nocturnal. Um, and it had just been into cover before there was enough light to find it prior to that. Uh, because it, it didn't light, it did not hang around in the basin the, uh, until, you know, just that early pre-dawn gray kind of light, you know, where even through your best binoculars, you still have a little bit of a pixelated almost type image because it's still pre-dawn, you know? Yeah. And by that time, by that time, this deer was headed for cover. And I think that's why we didn't see it. And then, I, it just so happened that for the days that we hunted it, we were able to locate it and it, and it stayed out a little bit later 
in the morning before it moved off into bedding cover. And you would think, okay, you're in the middle of the mountains. You can certainly find where it's bedding and go stalk it. And the bottom line was because of the type of cover that this thing moved into, all I was going to do if I went in after it and it had, you know, it hung out with, it's in the velvet. It was hanging out with a bachelor herd up there. And, and the, the only thing I was going to do if I went into its bedding area, no matter how confident I was that I knew where it was bedded, I was just going to blow it out and never see it again. So yeah, the next several days were, were tenuous in a, is he going to show up this morning and B is he ever going to give us, is he ever going to make a mistake and give us an opportunity to close the distance? Wow. So what were the other bucks like that were with this guy? I mean, it was your standard bachelor herd up in the high country of Colorado where you have a pretty broad range of age class deer. And, you know, as you guys know, one thing that age does do is it gives an opportunity, it gives the animal an opportunity to hit its genetic potential. But the other part of that is the genetics. And so you can have a six, seven-year-old buck that is is just that. It's a six, seven-year-old buck, but it doesn't have the combination of age and, and antler genetics. And that's what I think makes the pursuit fun, is I'm not only looking for the oldest deer that I can find, but I'm looking for the rare combination of a deer that's made it through winters and predators and hunting seasons, and also one that has the genetics to throw a set of antlers, you know, if the feed is right up there. Now, let me just start by saying kudos to your buddy, um, because as, as you called him a mentor, that's part of what being a mentor is, is, is showing them that, you know, I want to invest into you. Um, and I know, you know, 15 down the road, 15 years down the road, there's not much mentoring left, but, it, but it's still an act of showing, you know, I, I care about, I care about your journey in hunting. Um, and, and if we're going to truly, pass along the passion for bow hunting, which we should, because if we're going to protect our passion, we have to create new hunters. So if I'm going to create new hunters, there's going to be times I have to step back and say, you know what, why don't you shoot? Uh, you know what, why don't, why don't you take this buck? Uh, so kudos to your buddy. Um, but I don't know that I would have been that good of a friend to you. Um, now <laughs> that's hard enough for me to do on a greenhead, man, let alone something like that. Jeez. <laughs> well, just, we, we kind of had a, we've always had a working agreement. And, and now look, when something like this shows up, all of those things go out the window typically. Uh, but, but in this instance, they didn't, you know, this, this deer showed up and it was an area that I had introduced him to. He's been hunting for decades longer than I have. Um, and, and has, knows everywhere in the, you know, to hunt out West and it just so happened that this year we were back in an area that I had introduced him to. So it was kind of my spot. Okay. There's that element of it. But, but you know, again, if, I, if I'm back in someone's spot that they introduced me to, I'm there for a reason. And it's to find the biggest buck I can. So I'm not – there was no reason for him to do what he did other than just that's the type of individual he is. Wow. Now, what is it – I've never – I've never had a world record uh, deer of any sort stand in front of me. Uh, what what starts going through your mind as you realize this this is no ordinary deer? I mean, I'm sure you didn't know it was going to be the world record, but this is no ordinary deer. This is this is special, and what's about to happen uh, might never happen again. What starts go going through your mind when that deer stands up? 
Yeah, that's the tension part, right? Because we certainly had no idea that this deer was would score the way it does. But there's a lot of pressure now at that point because you're not it's you're hunting a wilderness area. These these deer are going to migrate through all sorts of property and down into their wintering ground and and along that journey there's other hunters and and so what's going through my mind is if this doesn't come together this year, I'll probably never see this deer again in my life. And not only that, if this doesn't come together in the next five or six days, we're running out of time up here on the hill. You know, it's day five when he shows up. We're going to be up here for maybe 11 days this year. And um, so we've already, we're just, we're running out of time. And I've never in my life seen anything like this. But granted, I had guesstimated it at probably a hundred inches lower than what it ended up scoring. Um, you know, we, we were like, Oh man, with all the stuff it has going on, it's gotta be, you know, a 230, 240 inch buck, which is a monster. And, uh, yeah. That's a huge I buck. Mean, just, yeah. You know, you're shooting big deer, Jason, when you can be a hundred inches yeah. off. Usually when I shoot a deer, I'm like, oh, I was, I was 10 inches off or I was, Oh, I was, I was 20 inches under, you know, you're shooting some monsters when you're like, yeah, I guessed him a hundred inches yeah. off. Well, I think, I think before we dive into the hunt story and kind of all the things, but you know, what's going through my mind is try to alleviate that pressure and focus on just the execution of what you do on a daily basis to try to get in close on a deer like this. But one quick note on this animal is that he doesn't, if, if you know mule deer, you you see those big 190, 200, 210 inch bucks. And when we when I say that, the frame, the main frame four by four, you know, has enough time depth and and everything that it's going to be a 200 plus inch buck just off of the main frame. And that's not that's what makes this deer even more unique. Is I think it's got like a 180 some inch mainframe. It's very few mule deer, I think. I don't know of another one that's been measured that has 150 inches, basically, of extras. And that's why this deer was hard to judge on the hoof and very hard for the Pope and Young guys to to wrap their head around and score. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's, you know, you were 100 inches the other way. I have people that show me pictures and they're like, oh, you want to see this buck? And they I'm like, oh, that's great. And they're like, oh, yeah, it, it was 210. And, and I look at them sometimes and I'm like, you know, 150 is a nice buck. That's a really nice buck. <laughs> and so they, they don't usually go a hundred inches the other way. So I, I always say, you know what, do you, do you have your score sheet after it's been sent in? Cause that's, that's the number. Once that's in there, I'll believe it. Right. So, yeah, man. I mean, as far as what's going through my mind, it's, it's trying not to focus on the pressure of the moment. Cause there is pressure. I mean, that's, I just spent, you know, a lot of savings, um, and an entire year planning this hunt. And now an opportunity that I really, I know, even though I don't know what it is as far as a world record, what I'm looking at it, I know that I, I won't hunt an animal like this again in my lifetime and trying to put those types of things out of my mind for the next several days and just focus on a few of the things that I could control. Uh, that, that was really kind of the mental game. So that takes us into, you know, kind of what went up to it. Tell us about the day of the hunt. Yeah. The day it finally came together, there had been a few faux stocks or failed stocks and, and I didn't make it too far into those, uh, 
earlier situations uh, in prior days because I the the situation wasn't right and I didn't want to blow the deer out and never see it again. I mean that's that's one of the other things about wilderness archery hunts is that uh, you, the hunt doesn't go along long enough or your time back there may not last long enough if you blow that deer out once. Um, probably not going to see him again. So there were some failed stocks, uh, a couple of, well, I think one earlier in the week. And then the day that it all came together and he, he stuck around, I have to go to the hand of Providence. Uh, you, you can only control a couple of things on a wilderness archery hunt. And then a whole lot of elements way outside of your control have to align for something to happen and you get within bow range. And that's, that's what happened. I mean, we're watching this deer just so happened that the day that I killed him, when it was finally bright light enough to see, I couldn't find him anywhere that, and I ended up finding him a lot higher above his bedding ground up above timberline than I had seen him in days past. And then I picked him up about the same time that he decided it looked like to me, you know, as a, as an observer that he realized he was a lot further away from timberline and where he bedded than he usually was at that time of day. Um, because he just started on a nice steady walk. And at this point in time, I think I'm, I don't remember it. I, I Google Earth at once. I think it's twelve hundred yards, something like that. That's my glassing point from him, and so he starts to just make a steady walk down from way above timberline where he was high in this basin. Um, he walks straight past the the rest of the bachelor herd that he's with. I think there were seven other bucks or something in that group, and creates quite a bit of separation between he and those bucks, and. And suddenly you see this storm. If you've ever been in the high country of, of the West, whichever state, and you're up high enough that you can look in adjacent drainages. And I see a storm coming up this drainage and, and there's enough wind and enough of a disturbance in what's going on that what this deer I figured out was typically doing is it was moving into the wind to its bedding area. And uh, again, this is, these are some assumptions because of the way this particular drainage was shaped and the way it, uh, you know, curled around the this mountain, this buck was able to actually move from high feeding ground into lower bedding ground, but move into the wind almost every single morning um, b- before the thermal started coming up just because of the shape of the drainage and where it was moving into bedding area. And so it was following its nose into its bed every day. And what happened the day that I killed it is a, a little bit of a front from an adjacent drainage kind of swirled over through the uh, through a, a saddle in the mountains. And I watched as really light snowflakes. This is, you know, September 2nd, but you're up above 11,500, up above 12,000 feet in elevation. And suddenly you can see through your binoculars this really light kind of late summer high mountain snow. It's not going to stick, but there's stuff falling out of the sky. And suddenly the wind direction changes such that that snow 
starts slamming into the butt end of this deer while he's moving off to his bedding area. And when the wind switched and he couldn't follow his nose into his bed, he froze. And that was the game changer. He literally stopped, didn't move, and stood there long enough for me to realize, I mean, 15 minutes passed, and I'm like, wait a second, he hasn't moved. Am I missing my opportunity here? Um, and I had another friend up there on the mountain with me. And again, it's nice not to make decisions like this in a vacuum, having someone there to, to kind of bounce things off of and consult with and say, am I really going to lose all of this elevation and make this run? This is the longest he's ever hung out. You know, we had, we had good cloud cover, uh, I, you know, a low ceiling, so we didn't have the sun peeking up over the mountain, pushing him and the wind had shifted, uh, everything, you know, suddenly I started to, I didn't realize all of those things until he stopped and stood there for 10 minutes. And I started realizing what was going on. And then at that point in time, I, I drop off of the ridge line and, uh, I've got some ground to cover. And, uh, as soon as I get down off the ridge line, there's several hundred yards, you know, 700 plus yards between me and him. And he's completely out of sight, <clears throat> but the bachelor herd, he had moved far enough past them. And these are the elements, these are the things that you can't control. And, and when you're on a backcountry you, you, mule deer hunt, uh, when things come together like this, you, you really just have to count your blessings because he was, uh, he was solo and a couple of hundred yards away, he had gone below the bachelor herd by, you know, 200, 250 yards, and they were still higher. And I had dropped down. I could see the bachelor herd, but because of the terrain features, the deer that I was, this, this buck couldn't see me and he couldn't see the bachelor herd. And so if I could, the, the, the immediate, uh, kind of first step in the execution of this plan that was quickly formulated on the ridge line was I'm going to run across this this flat and push the that bachelor herd up out of there so that it's just literally me and me and this buck one on one and um, first step of execution worked out and then it was just a matter of was he still there by the time I made it across you know all of that land. And, um, I had plenty of terrain features between he and I, and, um, you know, fortunately everything had worked out up until that point. But I, when I got over to where my kind of the point where when I'm on a stock out West, I don't know how many of the, of the guys that listen to your podcast are whitetail hunters or Western hunters, but I get to a point where I pre designed where I'm going to drop my boots, my backpack, any of my other gear and try to cover the last 100, 200 yards of the stock, you know, as light and as quiet as possible. And I'd made it to that point. And the only thing I knew is that all the other deer that I was aware of in that basin, I had moved out. And now I just had to find out if he had stayed put. Wow. <laughs> so, it's, it's nice when it comes together, just how you draw it up like that. Well, those are things that kind of happen on the fly. I mean, right. You never draw it up, but and that's what I, that's what every single situation, as much as I can daydream about a hunt and where I'm going to hunt and what's going to happen, everything unfolds differently every single year. And there's nothing 
that is the same year after year. Uh, that's another aspect of this that is, it doesn't matter how it ends. It doesn't matter if I actually harvest or I don't. Everything about the hunt is unique. My wife gets sick because I, uh, sick of me saying once in a lifetime, I, cause every year I have a once in a lifetime experience. Yeah. It never duplicates itself. Right. So, uh, but anyway, going on, I, I, I had basically about a, a rock outcropping roughly the size of a home. I don't know. It's, I still look at it on pictures and the original idea was for me to drop down on the, from my glassing position, what would have been the near side of that rock outcropping and come out below it and basically be on the deer's level. And if the wind stayed the way it was when I left my glassing position, everything would be money. But as I was going down on the, again, my near side of the rock outcropping, I realized that the wind was now coming up. So immediately I thought, okay, he's moved off. The wind switched. He followed his nose into his bedding area and, you know, I've got it. But I went up around this outcropping and down on the far side of from where I was glassing and had perfect visual of where I thought I had last seen the deer and I couldn't see anything. Um, and I'm sitting there going, okay, is he, did he lay down and he's sitting somewhere in those shrubs, you know, staring a hole through me waiting to bounce because that's usually what happens with mule deer, right? They lay down like a pheasant and then they decide when they're going to run and you have no idea that they're right under your nose. And I thought it's either that or he's followed his nose off into bedding and, um, it's time to back out. So as I was sitting there kind of hoping that he wasn't staring a hole through me, um, all of a sudden there, there was another, you know, I call it a rock outcropping down below me about, well, it ended up being 80 some yards away. Um, and a lot of trees and brush around it. And I didn't realize, even though it was that close, that it presented such a huge change in terrain. But this deer materializes out from behind that right in front of me. And fortunately, I had put myself in a position where I had a lot of break up behind me and the wind was still coming up. The wind was coming up into my nose and um, he had no idea that I was there and I ranged him and he's walking right at me at 80 yards. <laughs> and, and that's when I was, I was pinned because I had a very steep hillside that was provided nice backing, you know, cover behind me but it didn't have high enough cover that I could move or crawl or walk. It was like some shin and knee high grass and stuff. And as he walked out from behind this stuff, he just laid down and laid down kind of quartering to me. Uh, and, and I'm just sitting there with my rangefinder in my hand going, okay, what do I do now? He's 80 yards away. I don't want to take that shot. So after a little bit of time passed, I realized he would turn his head every so often and be looking dead away from me. So I was kind of in that blind spot right behind his head. And I could tell that based on his antler configuration. If you've seen pictures of him, his antlers come together really close at the back. And so every time he would turn his head and I could see that same kind of look 
at 80 yards, um, I would just move to my right a little bit. And what was what I realized is if I could get far enough to my right and the wind stayed true long enough, that same outcropping that he had walked out from behind was now going to be between he and I, and I could, I, I, I could stalk in and get within shooting distance of him. So that became the game for roughly the next hour. And again, when I say things have to go right, the wind has to stay right for an hour. And because we had this front had, that had kind of come through, now I had a very good steady wind coming straight up uh, into my face. And I had low cloud cover still, so he wasn't being moved out of his bed by the sun or anything like that. And he had just decided to lay down in an area that before he was not going to stick around in. And so I just shimmy to my right, sometimes six inches at a time. Sometimes I take a big, you know, slide on my butt. But eventually, uh, like I said, after about an hour or so, I was able to get into a position where that outcropping that he had been behind previously was now between he and I. Um, and from there, I literally, I, you know, I have my boots off. I stand up and I walk around to where I think I'm going to have a shooting lane. And there are two little seven to 10 foot evergreens at the end of this outcropping. And as I peer around them, I can see his right antler and I hit it with my rangefinder, and he's inside of 27 yards. He's 26.3 yards away. How big did he look at that range? I was trying not to pay attention. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, it was it was that moment in time where I was like, okay, Justin, everything that you can't control has gone in your favor. Now, the only thing you can control is setting up and executing a proper shot sequence. And and that's what I had to focus all of my attention on. I couldn't otherwise, you know, there were so many things that would creep into my mind that would freak you out in that situation. Like, don't mess this up. <laughs> um, and that's. I just took time to, I, it was very fortunate because I had those trees and because of the rock outcropping now, I was up on top of it and he was below me. So I was standing above the top of his antler level, if you will, where he was bedded. And I just put myself in a position, almost like I'm standing on the line at an archery range, literally. I mean, I'm making sure that I'm my feet are planted right, and I've got nothing else to think about for a moment here because I don't know how long he's going to stay bedded. Um, but getting myself in perfect position, looping up, walking through my shot process, uh, like I said, just like I'm standing on the range, trying not to think about what is a pretty intense moment. That's, yeah, just like at the range. <laughs> I must be I must be going to a different range, I think. <laughs> yeah, well, so, no kidding, man. Yeah. I've never, I've never experienced that at an archery range. Yeah, that's, this would be like going to the range if there were like a dozen people throwing things at you all at that same moment. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, that's and you know that's the beauty of archery is, and you read about it, and and all sport really is about executing in the moment, and that's what I like about archery is it doesn't matter if I'm in my front yard. Um, putting pressure on myself with a tough shot. I live on a couple of acres, so I can shoot some interesting shots here in the mountains. And, you know, okay, if I miss this shot, I'm going to break an arrow, 
right? Um, I've got to focus on executing, not breaking my arrow. Uh, and in this instance, it was the same, the only way to calm my nerves. But I'll tell you what, another interesting phenomenon that happens for me regularly is I, I've never hunted from a tree stand. I've never had a whitetail walk in. I can't imagine I'd be able to control myself in that situation because here, if you, my nerves have had a chance when he first walked out at 80 yards and pinned me and I thought he had me pinned, but he looked straight through me and laid down and then he would turn his head and I was able to move, you know, over an hour has passed. And honestly, my nerves are quite calm. Usually this, this was the first time where I've been in that situation, tight quarters with a mule deer where even though a lot of time had passed and, and I was, and, and usually I'm very calm by that point in time, this one kind of had my nerves on end because it was, it was unique. Right. But with all of my fidgeting and honestly, I was kind of like shuffling my feet, not shuffling my feet, but kind of moving around just on the edge where this, I don't know if that caught his attention or something slightly caught out of the corner of his eye because I wasn't in position very very long before he kind of gave the signal with his antler bob and I came to full draw as he stood up. And then, you know, as is always the case in archery, <clears throat> right at that moment, a new variable presented itself that I had not accounted for. And right at the end of this outcropping, there's this tuft of brush that I thought would not be an issue. And when he stood up was right over the kill zone. So now in a split second, and it happens so fast, he's quartering away from me really hard. I either kind of lean towards my, you know, away towards my, my back and I shoot in front of that brush and I'm going to hit the shoulder. I'm shooting fixed blades. I mean, they're going to just at 26 yards and I was shooting like a 550 green arrow with like 22% FOC that year just for this type of a situation where I might have a little brush or whatever, or I tilt forward at the waist a little bit and I shoot behind that brush and I hope I catch his liver on the onside and then it'll, and then because he's cording so steep, it'll go through, catch his lungs and stuff on the offside on the exit. That'll happen in the blink of an eye. I lean forward, I found the spot and I just press through the shot, right? Just squeeze the, the shoulder blades whatever your thought process is, that's what I was going through in my head. And, um, it did exactly what it was supposed to do. The arrow went in, found the liver on the onside and exited through the lung on the offside. And he went, like I said, he ran straight downhill, a very steep hill, about a hundred yards and then curled up. And that was that. Wow. And, and what'd you feel like right then? Had it, had it sunk in yet? Exactly what you had just accomplished? The interesting thing, no, no. And in fact, it didn't for months, months and months. I will tell you that even before I knew it was even close to a 300 inch animal, which is rare, right? There was something about that moment. And then as I walked down to the buck and I saw him for the first time and I put my bow down, I didn't grab his antlers out of the brush and hold him yet because my friend was still way up on the hill had not left the glassing point. Obviously now he was on his way down. And so I had a moment to collect myself as I went back up 
picked up my boots, put on my boots and my jacket and those types of things. And then went back down and looked for my arrow and, and then made it back down to the deer. And, uh, a little bit later, my friend showed up and that was the first time that I laid hands on him is after my friend was there. And in that time that elapsed from the time that I saw that he was down and the time that my friend arrived, I started to realize that this, I don't know why, but I had a clear impression that this deer was a lot, uh, it was bigger than, I don't want to say bigger than me, but I clearly did not understand what I had on the ground. I knew that it was unique, but I, I was like, the only way I can put it, and I'm sorry, I'm struggling with words here is I knew that the story had not ended yet. This deer was unique enough and something else was going to come of this. And I was just, it was clear in my mind that it's like, oh, this is actually just the beginning of this journey uh, with this buck. Um, that's, that's what I remember thinking. Well, I, I know I cannot wait to see him when he makes his journey to Reno in April. Cause I, you know, <laughs> yeah. I, I probably won't get to touch him, but I'm still going to get my picture with that thing. Cause that is fantastic. Yeah. It's, um, that, that's, it's, it's been interesting. I mean, I didn't know what I had until four or five months later. Right. Um, I just dropped him off the taxidermist and that was that. And then it was a few, several months later that, uh, the taxidermist called and said, Hey, you know, let's, you probably ought to think about getting this thing measured. And I was like, ah, you just, you know, just kind of tell me what you think it scores. And he's like, no, I think you probably ought to call somebody that is a Pope and young score. Yeah. <laughs> it, and there's, so there's a difference. It's, you know, just being out and in we're the glad world. You did. Yes, we are. But being out in the world, it's, it's amazing. Cause people are like, Oh, I know, I know how to stretch a tape, but it's, um, you know, the guys that, that do that, the, precision that they do that with is just something I got to witness the panel a year ago and uh, it, it's amazing how meticulous they are. And, and, you know, I'm not a finished carpenter. I'm like, yeah, within a 30, you know, within a 16th, that's pretty close. These guys get it exactly, exactly where it has to be. And, and so a shout out to all of our measurers who, who do this for us. We really appreciate that. And, and here's just one example of, of where it does make a difference. So. Yeah. You know what I find, there are a lot of guys out there that, I mean, they're, they're not getting paid anything to do that. So the first person that came and measured this, he's a Pope and young scorer. I mean, he, he spent three or four hours with it the first day. Um, and then came back four or five days later with another Pope and young score and together they kind of tackled it and they said, okay, Justin, this is kind of what it is. Uh, you probably ought to consider entering this. <laughs> right. And, um, that's the way it sat until, so that was, you know, January of 2019. And then, uh, in 2020, I get the call, Hey, we're, there's a velvet category being created. And so here's two guys that just, you know, out of the goodness of their heart combined, they spent, um, probably a total of 10 hours. Mm-hmm because it's a unique deer. And then this year they called, they convened the special panel. You have four or five more guys that spent another three to four hours measuring this deer to give it the official score for the, uh, 
the world record. And no one is getting paid anything to do that. I mean, that's just part of preserving these things and keeping records for future generations and helping us understand what's going on in the state of Colorado in different places and different times of the, you know, uh, of the year. And uh, so, yeah, hats off to people that uh, spend their time and dedicate their time to help all of us um, have a better understanding of what's going on with the animals that we love. It's, it's just a true testament to how well the, you know, model of North American wildlife management is doing for us to have the ability to not only harvest something like this, but just be around a, an animal of this magnitude and this size. It's, it's a real testament to the process and it's a testament to the management. And, you know, that's why we're always saying, Hey, if, if you have a buck like this, we need to know about it. You need to enter this thing because these are things that people look at is, Hey, is this working Is the management decision that they made five years ago or six years ago? Is it working? Is it having the desired effect and giving us these trophy quality animals or, you know, do we need to make another change? And when people enter bucks, you know, of, of all calibers, it helps give them the tools that they need to make those decisions. And clearly a lot of things went right for, for this particular situation. You absolutely nailed it too, Justin. That That is 100% why you should get deer um, entered in. You know, I, I've heard people say, I, I have no interest in entering my deer. I don't need the recognition. I don't need to be in a record book. But it's so much more than just your name in a record book. You're honoring that animal. You're honoring the legacy of that animal. Uh, but but just like Jason just said, you're going to to help continue to create new opportunities to harvest animals of that magnitude. So, so hats off to you for entering it, man. Hats off to, to your answer. That, 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 that right there is 100% why people need to enter at, enter their animals of all sizes, not just world records. I mean, if you shoot a hundred 130 inch whitetail, enter it. Um, it, it goes to, to, to help us. It goes to, to continue to protect our rights for bow hunters. So, so man, uh, hats off to you. And that's a, an absolute fantastic mindset to have about entering an animal. So, so I, I appreciate that. Yeah, you know, I'll add to that that it's something that I've learned. It's something that I've come upon, obviously, because I'm more – it's definitely not about putting my name in the record book because the last thing I want is for people to uh, want to find out more about where I hunt. Yeah. <laughs> right? And and so it is – this is 100%. The, the reason this deer is entered is is for all of the purposes that you guys have outlined and, and you know, the, the, the statement that Pope and Young stands behind is, as far as keeping these records long-term and then helping game agencies, as you pointed out, understand what's having an impact from a game management. I mean, they're – you can look at a lot of societies and a lot of cultures in this world that don't have an opportunity to hunt. I think it's very clear that here in the U S because of sportsmen and because of these types of organizations, we've been able to preserve a hunting heritage and, and a hunting opportunity where other countries that initially had just as many natural resources don't have those anymore. So it's uh, we're very fortunate and hopefully we can do our part to, to maintain that. Absolutely, man. 
Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for your support for of the Pope and Young Club. I pre- we we appreciate it, man. And uh, that that's absolutely the mindset we need to have. That uh, just as easily as these rights were given to us, they can be taken away from us. So so, uh, man, I appreciate you. Congratulations again on a fantastic deer. Yeah, man. I appreciate the opportunity uh, to to get on here and talk about it. Obviously, there are so many little nuances and details to that story that. You just can't cover, even though we've already been here for an hour. But you guys, I can't. I, hopefully, I have a chance to meet both of you uh, out in Reno. I'll tell you. You know, we'll get into some more of the details, and uh, you guys can take a look at this guy, uh, this this buck in person. I I cannot wait to see that buck in person. I've seen a lot of photos of that thing. I'm staring at one right now on my computer screen, and I cannot wait to see that thing in person. So we me as well. We appreciate Justin. Thanks so much for sharing it with us. We appreciate you being on our program. You know, the one thing I'm just going to ask is, um, you know, when you're 10 miles away from the vehicle, what's one thing that's in your pack that that you just can't live without? (laughs) Uh, Well, let's set aside the water filter and things like that, right? Yeah. And it's usually something, and it changes a little bit from year to year. Some years it'll be bacon. Some years it's bone broth. That's what I'm you talking can about. Never go wrong with bacon. That is never. <laughs> that's what I'm that's talking never about. A bad answer. Me and Jason uh, are coming yeah. home with you, my man. So I found prepackaged bacon that is not cured with your your typical, you know, your ites and eights that you try to avoid to keep your belly healthy, but it's naturally cured prepackaged bacon strips. I've taken that stuff in. That's that keeps me going. Um, hot bone broth, hot miso soup, freeze-dried meats. Every year that I'll find something new that's just that little thing that it's like, oh, yeah, this is nice to have. Hey, listen, uh, Russell Stouffer's, and, and this is just, this is absolutely hilarious, but I promise you there will be hunters get on board with it. Russell Stouffer's just came out with a fanny pack that you can put lasagna in, and, and it fits your lasagna to keep your lasagna warm, and then you can put your hands in there to keep your hands warm, and then you just pull your <laughs> lasagna out and eat it. <laughs> that sounds a little too too heavy to take into the backcountry, but if I'm that's only a, that's going, a midwestern thing right there, my man. I'll be sitting in a tree stand Christmas morning eating lasagna, yeah. bro. My first opportunity to jump from a tree stand, I think I'm going to try the lasagna. <laughs> that sounds good. Well, well, Justin, thanks again. Uh, love the bacon. Love love that answer. We appreciate you spending some time with us today. Can't wait to meet you in Reno. And uh, we want to see all of our other friends in Reno, the uh, April 14 to 16. We'll see you there. We can't wait at the Nugget. And uh, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate having you. Yeah, thanks for having me on, guys. It's, it was great. We look forward to meeting you guys soon. Absolutely, man. We'll have to get some bacon. All right on.